right. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar. Um, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Mark Graben from Kinexus, and we're joined by four Kinexians, as you see here. We're going to let them all introduce themselves in a moment, but we are joined by Kim Giuliotti, Greg Jacobson, Maggie Millard, and Linda Vaccaro. Our format today is a panel discussion, no slides, just conversation. We have a plan. We've got some topics and questions that we're going to explore around learning from mistakes. Uh, the panel today is sort of uh, a launch event for uh, my new book, um, The Mistakes That Make Us, Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation. It's uh, available now. Um, I want to announce our three book giveaway winners, as we've been doing with the webinars. Thank you to people for sharing about the webinar on LinkedIn. Our three winners this time are Richard Galinsky, Christine Thomas, and Liz Davis. So we will reach. I, I will reach out to you, and we'll get the signed copy of the book out to you. Um, just a couple other comments to tee up the conversation here today. Um, the book is inspired in a way by a podcast I've been doing called My Favorite Mistake. Greg Jacobson here with us today was a guest in episode 31. And you know, beyond that, you know, in, in the exposure I have and you know, the limited role I have in Kinexus, I've I've observed and been directly involved in um, a culture of learning from mistakes and one that emphasizes learning and improvement um, over shame and punishment. So there are ended up being a lot of great stories uh, in the book, kind of highlighting the Kinexus culture. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, what's being done to actively cultivate the culture, and hopefully some lessons that you can use in your workplace. So um, again, thank you everybody for being here today. Um, let's go around the horn and, and do some introductions, kind of, you know, who you are, what you do at Kinexus. Optional fun fact, if you're so inclined. Um, Kim Giuliotti, we'll kick it off with you. Thanks so much, Mark. Happy to be here. So Kim Giuliotti, I'm Director of Product here at Kinexus. So I work extremely closely with our other product managers, our development team, and we are the ones who put out all of the uh, fancy new features you guys see every six to eight weeks. So spend a lot of time talking to customers, prospects, understanding the market, um, understanding everyone's needs and what goals they're trying to achieve. I've uh, been in product management for well over a decade. Um, and a fun fact, I, well, I, I've been watching the Women's World Cup. Hopefully a lot of you are very excited. I stayed up later than I should have last night watching the women's team play. Um, and I'm also just a sports fan and really excited for the fall and college football to kick off. All right. Well, thank you, Kim. And uh, we, we always have attendees from a lot of different countries. We'd love to hear where you're from if you want to put that in the chat if that lines up with a Women's World Cup team or not. Let us know where you're from. Um, so next we'll go uh, Greg Jacobs. And here I was trying to figure out <clears throat> um, who won the game last night. Uh, U.S. Drew. Okay. <clears throat> Wait, U.S. Drew? It was a draw? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said U.S. and I was like, yes. So, um, <laughs> well, happy to be here. I have a huge amount of experience with mistakes. And so thank you so much for inviting me to talk about all of them. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder. I am um, affectionately self-described as the the great agitator of the group. And, and I mean that in a way of just always trying to um, get get us to, to think about things and to um, bring in a different perspective, and um, and uh, really, it, it it stems from my value of um, trying to make everyone's potential um, the best that it can be. And so, been working in continuous improvement probably for 18, 19, 20 years, somewhere in that round realm. And uh, as one of the two co-founders of Kind Access, I've been here for quite some time. So, fun fact. Um, Fun fact is that I am working on a Pink Floyd solo on the guitar, and that was the first thing I thought of if you happen to be here during the soundtrack. We talked about Pink, but a different band, so that's me. Yeah. Another fun fact about Greg on the podcast, I asked guests to tell me your favorite mistake, and, and, and Greg had five. 
that's a, a record for the most mistakes shared. <laughs> so I'm thank, a you. thank you for that, Greg. Overachiever on the podcast. Um, all right. So thank you, Greg. Uh, Maggie Millard, we'll have you go next, please. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I've been at Kinexus since 2012, and this is the first time they've let me on a webinar. So hopefully I make it through the whole thing without saying anything embarrassing. Um, I've been here for a long time in a variety of roles, most recently as a vice president and head of customer experience. So I work a lot with our teams that support customers, the account managers, training, support, solutions, engineering. Um, when our customers meet with our team, it's usually those people. Um, fun fact, I have 34 houseplants. I counted this morning. And now that I've learned how to propagate them, it's about to get a lot worse or better, depending on your perspective of houseplants. Thanks, Maggie. I don't think it's a mistake to have you here today. You could prove us wrong, but thank you. for. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to take chances, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good, reasonable chance we're taking here today. Um, and then next up, we have Linda Vaccaro. Hello, um, I'm Linda Vaccaro. I have been here at Kinexus for about a year and a half as a senior lean strategist. And what I do in that work is connect a lot with our customers, um, as well as prospective customers to a degree, making sure that uh, the design of their Kinexus, their Kinexus instance aligns with the way that they're doing continuous improvement on the ground. Um, I've been doing continuous improvement work for about 18 years. Um, and so I have a fair bit of experience prior to coming here to Kinexus. Uh, one fun fact is that in addition to being a Kinexian, I am a sometimes balloon artist. Mm -hmm. Another fun fact is that I am in Pittsburgh, not Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite balloon animal to make, Linda? Additional tidbit on top of a fun, fun fact? Uh, yeah, I like making giraffes. Very cool. <laughs> and Linda has shown off that talent at various company events. So we'll look forward to more balloon animals um, from Linda. And then um, real briefly, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe follow a similar format here. Mark Graben, Senior Advisor with Kinexus. Um, I've been involved uh, with Kinexus in, in different ways going back to 2011 when I got introduced to, to Greg and Matt. Uh, the co-founders, I manage the webinar series. You know, I have, uh, as I describe it, you know, kind of a, a, a very part-time role with Kinexus, but like a full belief in the mission and the software and uh, the team. So I am thrilled as always to be uh, part of the Kinexus team. And I'm thrilled that we're um, here today to talk about something that's important to all of us. And, and that is um, culture and, and leadership and what we are trying to do um, within Kinexus. So I'm, I'm going to throw a question and we're going to have some, I think, opportunity for fairly freewheeling um, discussion here today. But I'm going to start off with a, a question directed um, to Greg and then others can, of course, um, chime in. But Greg, you know, for my book, Beyond the Podcast Interview, um, you shared some additional thoughts with me. And one thing really stood out, and, and, and this is in the book, um, you can't have a culture of continuous improvement without learning from mistakes. So I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate on that, and, and I don't disagree with you, but why do you believe that to be true? Well, I always love that you find things that I say where I'm like, oh, I said that? That sounds really <laughs> Yeah, I have the recording. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. I think what, what we, if you break down lean continuous improvement um, into kind of its most basic form in, in many variations of that, you're going to find that um, you could look at waste as a mistake, right? You could look at a defect as a mistake. And uh, so if you um, kind of recognize that, then you are really recognizing that there's simply the potential for there being a better end state. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you can either think of oh, well, I'm going to invent all these just brilliant ways to do things better, or you're going to do what most of us do and go look at where are all the low-hanging fruit? Where are the areas of waste? Where are the defects? Or where simply are mistakes happening? And so I think it's kind of a shortcut for individuals to 
get right down to what is a way that I can improve in a value-add way. So if you can open yourself up, open your team up, open your company up to saying mistakes are, are not a bad thing, but mistakes are opportunities for learning, then I think you have maybe made the, mo- the single most important step in developing a culture of continuous improvement, which I'll define simply as every single person in the organization improving every day. And so I think um, I, I'm, I hadn't thought about mistakes until I started listening to your podcast. Um, and then um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, you've actually put out an audio version, or at least you've given me a, a, a pre-audio version. So soon there will be a, a formal audio soon. version of the book. Yeah. And in um, and, and, and reading the chapters in which you were um, highlighting some kind of stories. So thank you for bringing it to, I think, to the CI community that this is a, a really easy non uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, instead of it being, you know, about Japanese words and tools and, you know, uh, and what is the word I'm looking for, Mark? Mainstream? Yeah, like a more mainstream way to talk about lean concepts. And and I think that's going to be a huge, and it's happening. <laughs> you can't go read popular um, books today without there being lean stories and views. And I think that that's happening. And I know I'm changing the subject and talking um, a little bit too long and I'll pass it back to you, but it's happening where lean is just becoming part of the way business is done. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just using the vernacular that, that we all use in an everyday um, way and mistakes is one of those. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, mistakes are just one driver of opportunities for improvement, but it's a pathway. And I think it's, it's one that if ignored or stifled, you know, it's going to hold us back. I think too, that if you're asking people to improve, you're asking them to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone goes out on a limb to try something a new way, there's a chance that they're going to fail. And mm-hmm. if you want them to improve, you have to give them the freedom to fail and to know that it will be okay if they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can anyone think of some examples of, you know, as we drive a lot of improvements internally and, 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 and continue innovating, um, you know, an example in the context of, you know, a software company like Kinexus of, you know, freedom to fail and and learning from it. I've got lots of examples. (laughs) Go ahead. So um, working specifically in product development, when we're putting out um, features and enhancements in the software to our customers, what we build, we're essentially building with the information that we have at the time. And I don't know that we ever get anything perfect. I doubt we ever have gotten anything perfect the first time it goes out. But that's the beauty of agile development, which you know we're an agile shop at Kinexus, is that you get it out there again with the best. You created something with the best information you have at the time, and then you start getting feedback. So we're constantly getting feedback about how we could make tweak this to make this better. Or if we could do this over here, more people would be able to use it for another use case. So we're, we're constantly receiving feedback on how we could make our product and the features we release better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there, you know, there's this range of possible mistakes. It could be a mistake in understanding customer needs. It could be a mistake in execution. Um, and, and, you know, there's opportunities. I mean, there, there are processes, maybe you can touch on real quickly, you know, some of the processes for people who don't know how a software um, development company works or what an agile process is. I mean, there are attempts to catch those mistakes if they're made at different points along the way before it reaches the customer. Could you share a little bit about that, Kim? Yes. Um, this is jumping ahead, but this is going to get into your psychological safety. <laughs> oh, that's all right. We'll talk about. But there are so many checks along the way. The team that's working on, excuse me, let's just say like one user story. So one feature that we're going to put into a release. The product manager has meetings with customers, prospects, our um, customer experience team internally to gather as much information as we can. We create a mock-up, we write the story, we take that to the developers right away we're getting feedback from the developers on whether things are unclear, whether things are missing. Um, Could something be worded better? Did we forget about this use case? So we're already 
getting feedback on things we may have missed or are incorrect. From there, the developer takes it and they actually start coding the feature. And once the feature is coded, they do what we call a pull request. So every other developer on the team actually goes through and kind of proofreads, does like a code review and looks over their code and then makes suggestions of, hey, did you think about doing it this way instead? Or if you did it this way, it could you could, you could have a performance improvement. Um, so they go through that process. Then after it's pull requested and everyone's done their review, then it goes to our, our QA team and they're the ones that test the feature. Does it work? Does it, you know, the product manager said it has to do X, Y, Z things. Does it do all those? When we released the new code into the platform, did it break anything else downstream? And then if it did, then the mistakes they're catching are, you know, we call them testing defects. Those go back to the developer to fix. So everybody is constantly reviewing everyone else's work. So there's a lot of um, trust and psychological safety involved there throughout that whole process. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Maggie, with the teams you lead, customer facing in in different ways. Like, do you have some thoughts on like some of that that um, feedback cycle, if you will, if something does reach a customer or if there's something that they think is a mistake, what what happens then? When the products defects make it to customers yeah or if if something's just confusing even Mm -hmm. i think a lot of that is just communicating with the customers about like what they understand the problem to be sometimes it's a product defect sometimes it's user error misunderstanding how something should work and so i think the, the key is to get curious um figure out what happened how it happened um, we are on the side of over-communication, so both internally and with customers, making sure that everybody is on the same page. Yeah. And and, and getting curious is, it seems like a good habit. Um, for the Ted Lasso fans in the room, there's a famous scene in season one where Ted Lasso, I think, quotes Walt Whitman, which may or may not be a mistake, but the quote is great of, be curious, not judgmental. And I think, you know, that applies to different situations where if something has gone wrong, um, being judgmental leads to a lot of um, dysfunction, being curious and, and focused on learning and improving, you know, put, puts us in a better direction. So it's great to hear being curious as a, as a habit. I think that that curiosity and acceptance of problems really comes through on the internal processes at Kinexus too. I know. I have made mistakes with the best intentions and nobody ever questions, you know, whether, whether I had good intentions or not, even when it results in extra work for somebody else, they just jump right in and work to solve the problem with me. And and then we identify opportunities to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And it's funny you talk about intent just real real quick. I mean, there's a phrase that you see used a lot of people will describe an unintended mistake. And like, well, that's that's redundant, right? I mean, they're all unintended. We think we're doing something that's the right thing to do. And then we learn at some point, maybe it wasn't. But uh, Maggie, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that there's there's so much trust in that to know that you can make a mistake and to know that your team will rally behind you. We talk a lot about focusing on the processes, not people. Mm-hmm. Um, and when something goes wrong, we trust that the person has the best intentions, that everyone is doing their best work and trying as hard as they can. And so if a mistake was made, we get curious and we ask questions about how did this happen? Like, what was the circumstances that led to this? What process problem do we need to fix? Is it reminders for something or follow up on something or documentation? Um, recognizing that it, if someone is trying their best and if they're making a mistake, there's a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the why questions, as we hear so much about in lean or lean startup or other settings, I mean, tone matters, right? I mean, it can be asked in a, a curious way, like, well, why, why could that have happened versus why'd you do that? <laughs> I mean, those those whys are not the same. I would I would say. Um, I'll share I'll share a trick that I got from Greg. I hadn't heard it till I joined the organization here, but we try not to ask why. We try to turn that into a what or a how question mm-hmm. because why can elicit feelings of like defensiveness and you did something wrong. 
Mm-hmm. So that's something that we're like the product organization or Kinexus as a whole, as we're talking to people and trying to get curious, um, trying to kind of flip that line of questioning on its head. Yeah. What, what led you to tell my toddler oh. that I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> Craig? Kim, what led you to tell that story at that time? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Demonstrating that. Uh, I couldn't help myself. Demonstrating. Yeah, right. Uh, well, Mark, Mark asking why it tripped my, yeah, just triggered that story in yeah. my head. And, and then I was trying to, re- I was trying to relate it to Maggie's. We blame processes, not people, but I couldn't do it fast enough. So I'm yeah. not blaming you, Mark. <laughs> I, I, fair, no, I'm not taking it that way. But I think some of it has to do with context and culture. Like when I think people know there, there's, there's trust and mutual respect and constructive um, responses to things language, you know, might not come across as blamey or critical. Like, well, why, why did that happen? Where in some workplaces though, you might have to be really super sensitive to the environment and what people have been experiencing. So it's one of those things where what works in one place, whether that's Toyota or someplace else might might not land the same way um, in your organization. But, you know, I mentioned Toyota and, and Linda, I want to turn, you know, turn it to you. You have a lot of experience in different settings related to continuous improvement and, and lean. You know, how would you describe you know, elements of a culture of continuous improvement? We're going to talk you know, about culture of learning from mistakes, but mm-hmm. a culture of continuous improvement. How would you describe that? Well, I think that Greg started to talk about this um, himself as well, but I really think that it comes back to people. And you know, like he said, it's really about every person working to improve every day. And I think that when you start there, you realize that there's a whole network of things that have to happen in order to make that possible. So if we want every person improving every day, then we need to make sure that we're creating a safe space for calling out problems, that when somebody says they did something wrong, that that's a positive thing and not a negative thing. Um, And I think that you have to keep in mind also that um, in continuous improvement, we're not always moving forward. Sometimes we have to take a step back in order to really move along on our path toward whatever our goal is. But overall, I think that it's rallying your people together towards a common goal on a daily basis. So I'm curious, you know, open question for anyone who'd like to chime in. Like, why why is that important for a company like Kinexus to have a culture of continuous improvement? Because, Greg, my recollection, I think, is accurate. Going back to 2011, that was front of mind for you. You know, Kinexus was created and born from continuous improvement and to support continuous improvement. I know you and Matt, as the co-founders, you know, certainly were working on that being, you know, a culture within Kinexus. But um you know, to Greg or to anyone else, you know, why, how would you articulate the importance of a culture of continuous improvement? I'm, I'm gonna happy to jump in because you referenced me there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd love to say that it's because we want to be internally consistent, or as some people say, we want to eat our own dog food, which I, I, I that, that expression has never made any sense to me. Um, and, I'd also love it to 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 say that oh well this is kind of a principled um, kind of almost an ethical like there's a higher moral standing for it but I mean honestly quite frankly is, is that it just it just works you know and so I think if if something works um, there's there's inherent value in that and if you are in a if if you're in an environment or you're in a process um, um, that is not open to to change or to getting better, I think that's a really boring, um, uninteresting way to live life. I, and I think that most likely that that that's that is going to uh, at some point no longer be relevant. Um, and uh, so it's a much more interesting way to live life to constantly be kind of thinking through and and how now. I will say there's probably several different axes to, to a thought process of how much you can iterate and experiment on. You, know, you have to look at what, what are the regulatory backgrounds. I mean, we're talking about 
know, making a medication, um, um, <laughs> experimenting really quickly may not be the uh, most uh, beneficial. You're talking about um, changing a process in a line. There might be all these unintended consequences. There's going to be kind of what's the disadvantage of the impact of something going out? Um, can someone, you know, be harmed? What's the, how, what is the, the cost of, of changing something up um, based on, uh, you know, how many items would be produced or something. But um, at the end of the day, I don't care what industry you're in, these principles should apply in their own way. Um, and uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of my thought. And, and I, I'm glad that you thought it was intentional that we were going to live that life. And I, I think it, you, what I remember from those conversations back in 2011, Mark was, you said, Oh, you're a, you're just a natural lean thinker. And I was like, Oh, I, I didn't know that. And I, I there are people, I don't know if it's 10% of people or 50% of people or 90% of people at your organization, but there are people that just get these concepts and going out and finding those people even if they don't have a continuous improvement title or they don't have any certifications, but finding those people and making them influencers mm -hmm. in, in, in your area is going to help spread continuous improvement throughout your organization, whatever you're doing. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I think everyone has that ability and most people have the desire. I think the problem is when organizations kind of tamp that down or stifle it and people learn not to speak up about ideas and, and that might be a great question because I mean, if you're if you're a leader, and I would suspect that we have a, a sample bias here for people that are listening into this conversation. Um, so you're probably you probably believe already that in continuous improvement. But let's say you are talking to a leader and you don't know where they stand. And quite frankly, if you spend, you know. 90% of your time trying to influence the behaviors of your leaders. I think you're going to have more leverage and more impact in your organization, but that's probably a topic for a different discussion. But, but maybe simply asking them the question is, do you think mistakes are happening in the organization mm -hmm. and, and getting the answer? Cause if the answer is no, that's a very different um, set of follow-up questions of getting curious. And if the answer is yes, well then that's also different. And, you know, quite frankly, if, if I would tell a leader, if, um, if, if they don't think mistakes are happening, then they either aren't listening or they're not fostering a environment where people can tell you that there's mistakes happening. And I've worked in plenty of healthcare environments where it's it's the latter. And and what when mistakes happen, people just sweep those under the rug. They do all these gymnastics to make sure it's not reported or not looked at because then it, there's a, an element of punishment that comes down versus, hey, wait, let's stop. This is an opportunity. So um, just some of the thoughts. I, I know we went in different directions. I'd love to hear what Maggie. <laughs> I'll take Greg's answer and bring it down to a more practical level. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you felt psychologically <laughs> safe to state it that way. <laughs> more tactically. Um, Greg often says that the reason for our success is that we hire people to do jobs that are better at that job than we would be. And with the size of my team, if I were responsible for identifying opportunities for improvement in their work, uh, we would fall flat on our faces. I have no idea what these people do all day. And so for them to feel comfortable identifying areas to improve their work, my job can be to help them realize those ideas rather than to come up with those ideas. And that automatically means we're going to be starting from a better place in improvement. So it's like it's warm and fuzzy. It's the right thing to do. But also practically, all of our processes will improve if the employees are the ones making the ideas and implementing those improvements. Yeah. Now, one other thing, you know, that I think is worth pointing out, you know, as an observation is um, the onboarding process for new Kinexians. And uh, most recently, uh, Keith, who's been hired into you know an enterprise sales role. Hi, Keith, if uh, you're Hi. watching or listening. Um, as Keith, you know, was describing last week when we were all together in Austin, that he was asked to point out opportunities for improvement in the onboarding process as he was going through the onboarding process, which I, you know, I think is a really um, powerful practice. So I was wondering if any of you could sort of, you know, talk about the onboarding and, and some of that intent of trying to get people participating from the get-go. We manage our employee onboarding in Kinexus in a very long, very 
very long project. Um, every person who's gone through that project, we don't just ask them to help us improve it. We require them to help us improve it. Um, it's a task that's assigned to them as part of that onboarding project with the idea that when we started doing this project, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't really know how to onboard employees. And with each person that's gone through, it's gotten better. And so now we get feedback about how people felt so supported and they knew exactly where to look for things and they got all the training they needed. They knew what was expected of them. And that did not used to be the case. And the only reason that it is now is that every person who's gone through has helped make it better for the next person. Mm-hmm. I think onboarding is such a nice example of this because there's almost no way for us to really understand what it's like to onboard with our company because there's just so much that we understand and anticipate that we wouldn't be able to see some of the barriers that a new employee does. And simple things like somebody, we use Gmail. If someone hasn't used Gmail before, there's a steep learning curve that we didn't know was a learning curve because we just use it. Mm -hmm. And so someone's onboarding improvement was detailing what we need to know about Gmail, linking to Google resources to be able to do them. And so now some employees will get that and they'll be like, check, I know how to use that. And others have the answers that they had no idea what to do. And from day one, they can effectively use their email. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm getting really excited about this because there's several links to mistakes here, right? So it's it's so so y- yes, just to just to um re-emphasize what Maggie's point was. If you asked us about our onboarding seven or eight years ago, I mean, it was quite like it was it was just not good. It was piss poor. I'll just say that. And then if you look at it today, we can. Is, can I say that? I hope I. Can you, say it's that. okay. I mistakes are safe. Thank you. No, it was it was really bad. I'll just say that. Um, and then this is the problem. You put an ER doctor on a, on a thing and you're just going to go in a lot of different directions. And then you look at it today and we're getting great feedback about it because we really have made people responsible. But when we say we need you to improve this process in some way, one way is the person's using Gmail, for instance, and they make a mistake in Gmail because they didn't know about something. If we don't have a psychologically safe environment, for them to be like, hey, I don't know how to use this, or I made a mistake, or I did, then that kind of creates that opportunity. I think also, like Keith, um, he identified, we could say a mistake in how we were doing some of our LinkedIn profiles. I'll, I'll just say that. And he, he made us way better in standardizing that process. So I think mm-hmm. I, these are these are inextricably linked. You cannot have a culture that celebrates mistakes into opportunities without having a psychologically safe culture without really i'm going to say making people responsible and making sure it's very clear that you know the toyota saying of you're here to do your work and you're here to improve your work and like those are both equally important you may not do those 50 percent of the time you might do 198 percent of the time one two percent of the time but those are equally important things that you need to be touching on That onboarding task is really the first time we ask someone to take the leap of faith with us. Mm -hmm. It's a low risk scenario where they can point out a problem with their new company, their new coworkers, their new boss, and they can make this small test, dip a toe into the water of our CI culture. Um, It wasn't developed that way intentionally by any means, but we don't know where people have come from or what their backgrounds are, what their prior work cultures are like. And I think there's definitely an adjustment period for people coming to work here and recognizing that not only do we want you to speak up, we expect you to speak up. And I think starting out with that in their onboarding project sets that tone. Yeah. I, Nancy posted a great point in the chat that I just wanted to highlight in case people aren't paying attention to the chat, but the value of having a fresh set of eyes on a process is so helpful, especially if you have, if you have people at a company who've been somewhere for a while, everybody kind of gets tunnel vision, right? Like this is the way we've done it. They don't think to necessarily question everything in which they could, whereas a fresh set of eyes, they might be questioning everything and trying to reevaluate everything. So thank you, Nancy, for, for putting that point in the chat. You know, I wanted to um, give a shout out to Keith, I think, as an example of, you know, one of these kind of early observations and improvement opportunities where he and I had met on something related to, to LinkedIn. And 
part of the post-webinar workflow, and I'll invite everyone, please fill out the survey that you're prompted um, to fill out um, as, as you leave the webinar at the end, or I think it's sent to you in the follow-up email. Um, let us know your feedback about the webinars. And one of the questions we ask in that survey every time is, you know, uh, would you like to be contacted by Kinexus about our software? We're not going to, you know, reach out and bother people who are just enjoying the webinars. But if someone says, yeah, contact me, we have a, a process for following up. And that process has been very manual of me looking at a report, sending an email to Jeff Roussel, our chief revenue officer. And so for one, Keith had the improvement, you know, for his role. I'm like, well, let's start sending those now to Keith. I'm like, I'll try to remember. I'll try to make sure I don't forget. I'll try to make sure it's the standardized work. But then he had a better idea. He said, well, maybe we could automate that. And like, ah, I know enough about HubSpot to go into the back end and look at the form. And boom, if someone checks yes, it's now an automated notification uh, to Keith. Right. So now that takes me out of the loop. It prevents the risk of me missing one or forgetting to send it or the hassle of sending it to the wrong person. So like that, that back and forth, like it wasn't because Keith has this requirement to participate. Like he had, he had an idea, he shared it and I didn't hit him with, well, no, that's too hard to set up or, you know, we haven't needed that. Like he had a great idea and, you know, we collaborated and I think it was a good OI and I documented it in Kinexus. Is that eating our own dog food? <laughs> I've heard that the expression drinking your own champagne is another one. Oh, that's better than like, Kool-Aid. Probably. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and I was like, well, if you don't drink alcohol, that's not a good one. We need a better expression. Drinking the Kool-Aid is a really morbid reference. Practice yeah. what we preach. Practice what we preach. Yeah. Um, but as we, you know, kind of shift and talk a little more about psychological safety, and I'll, I'll give a quick definition and we'll hear thoughts from you know, the leaders uh, in the group here. But I, I think an example, we come back to Gmail. Um, there was a weekly Kinexus call maybe six weeks ago where somebody shared with the entire group voluntarily of like, hey, here's a problem I had this week. Um, I was waiting to hear back from a customer or so they thought. They were like, Why haven't I gotten a reply? And, and if I remember right, their message was like caught in a drafts folder or some unsent state. And they noticed that and they shared it with the team for the purposes of like, hey, everyone, you know, I want you to be aware of this risk. Here's a mistake I made. And then Greg, I remember you chimed in and, and did two things. One was like the reassuring, well, hey, I, yeah, boy, I've made that mistake too. And then here's the thing I've done to try to help uh, prevent that from happening. So I, I think that was just a nice little moment of, you know, demonstrating uh, a constructive, uh, positive response to a mistake that somebody shared. They didn't have to share that with the team. You know, I'm I'm glad that they did. So I, you know, I don't know if anyone else has recollections of of that little story or a different one that sort of illustrates the idea that we can share mistakes without fear of being ridiculed or punished. I, I think it's really important um, to to empathize with the person. And so I very much intentionally, one, because I've made every mistake that you can possibly make. And I keep trying to teach my 12 year old daughter that the only reason I'm able to say anything is because I probably made a mistake about what I'm saying. But I think it's really important to, to empathize with the person and to kind of set that tone to say, one, dude, I've totally made that mistake. And then it's like, oh, thanks for sharing it. The benefit of that exchange is really for everyone else, <laughs> you know, for everyone else to go like, oh, that's cool. Like, all right, so I can tell about my mistake and then I can make that a learning opportunity for people. And then I can, I just happen also in that process, tactically describe how I have um, created a, I mean, I probably have a little bit of ADHD traits. I didn't say I have ADHD, I, I use the word traits there. Um, and so I, I'm not infrequently starting an email and then getting fragmented to somewhere else. So now I, I have a recurring task once a week to go through my my drafts folder and and, and look look through those. So um, I, I'd love to hear what, what everyone else thinks about kind of that strategy. I think what Greg just did is a really good example of how Greg leads our company well. I think our leadership team sets the baseline for the organization and what behavior is acceptable. And Greg is so good at pointing out his mistakes, um, talking about problems that he's had, 
kind of showing everyone if if our CEO can do this, you can do this too. Um, and that modeling is so important for an improvement culture. Um, I think the other thing that we do that's really important is how we respond when mistakes are made and shared. And again, going back to Greg's point, um, we want people to know that it will be okay. We want them to speak up, to feel appreciated for speaking up. And the same goes with critical feedback. Um, when I introduce a new process and my team pushes back on the process, that's exactly what I want to happen. And it's not enough for me to just not get mad that they pushed back. I need to follow up with thanking them and actively appreciating them going out on a limb and taking that risk. Mm -hmm. Because I throw harebrained ideas over the fence all the time and I need them to push back with the limits of practicality. And yeah. the more we can do that and the more we can do that in a group where I propose an idea and they push back or someone brings a mistake to the table and it works out. Okay. The more we can do that, the more we build up that psychological safety and can really focus on improvement. Yeah. So let me just share real quickly, at least a definition of psychological safety. And then one other thought to build upon uh, what Maggie just shared. So, you know, psychological safety can be defined as a, a social condition or you know, like a workplace where people feel safe to use their voice and to speak up, to do things like point out problems, admit mistakes, say, I don't know, share ideas for improvement without fear of punishment. And, and, and Matt, actually two points building on the great things you shared there, Maggie. Like one is not just not punishing, but more actively thanking and rewarding and encouraging um, is, is really powerful. But then, you know, you answered a question that Kim asked in the chat, if it's recognized that psychological safety um, doesn't exist, are there tips to how to start build the team together to build that? And you, you touched on the two key points. I'll, I'll credit Tim Clark in his book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. Leaders modeling you know, these behaviors that you want to see and then rewarding others who follow their lead when they dip their toe in the water. I don't know, Linda or Kim, anything else that you would want to add about, um, you know, psychological safety and, and, and things that leaders can do to encourage it or times when you felt like you were being encouraged? Um, I would say being another leader at Kinexus, it made it a lot easier after I saw Greg and Jeff and Matt and like the other leaders modeling that behavior. Um, it wasn't just one leader. We kind of had a critical mass and then it catches on and everybody learns that that's okay. And it's not just one person from the top down. It's everybody from yeah. the top down displaying that behavior. I think having, you know, having leaders model is one thing, but also coming in as a new employee, seeing that the rest of the company follows suit and trusts that role modeling that the leaders have done is also really motivating. So those, you know, those internal champions, I guess, or, or leaders who are not officially part of the leadership team. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone comes to us with different levels of psychological safety and, I would like to explain to them, this is a very psychologically safe workspace, but I hear that doesn't work. And so constantly modeling these behaviors and rewarding these behaviors is going to build everyone up to that psychologically safe level that we need to be a continuous improvement company. Mm -hmm. And just recognizing not everyone is going to come in that way and that's okay. And that's our mission is to work with people, work with the culture um, to make everyone feel more safe. We just had an example of this. We had our um, kind of in-person all-hands meeting um, a week ago, two weeks ago. We were all down in Austin. And there was a big group of cross-functional people that came together. And we were tasked with trying to figure out, you know, how can we improve our new customer onboarding? And we started that meeting. Um, I forget if it was you, Stephanie, or if it was you, Linda, or if it was Stephanie. Um, that kind of laid out the ground rules ahead of time. And it was the, it's, you know, we're going to highlight process, not people. Um, you know, we're going to assume everybody has the best intentions, right? We're trying to raise how can we make this problem better? 
And so we had at the very beginning of that exercise, you know, five or 10 minute kind of laying the ground rules to make sure, you know, this is going to be a site. We want this to be a psychologically safe place. Please raise those issues. Um, yeah. So it was just a really good example of that coming together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can encourage and invite the speaking up and then, you know, like, um, and that's good. But then like Maggie said, you can't just mandate this is safe. Therefore you should feel safe. Like somebody has to learn and figure that out on their own through what they're seeing demonstrated and the interactions they're, they're having with people. It really does. Uh, we, have to, yeah. we have to pull them into our psychologically safe culture. We can't push them into it. Right. I wish we could, it'd be faster. <laughs> Right. There's we can get a, certified as a uh, safe. This is this room is a safe space. I'm like, oh, it doesn't work that way either. I'll just hang up some signs. That'll work great. Remember, you're safe here now. So there's so much amazing stuff going on in the chat. I just want to go back to a couple. So Jeffrey said um, that he brings his CFO. And I just I wanted to touch on that because there's so many elements of that that are amazing because I can imagine. Um, I can imagine you're doing a gamble walk. You, I have no idea if the CFO he's bringing in like understands the value of continuous improvement, doesn't understand the value of continuous improvement. But let's say they, if they do, that's great. If they don't, this could be a great way to introduce them to the types of things that can occur with continuous improvement. Let's say they they do understand the value. It is it is showing a huge message to wherever they're doing the gamble. Um, the CFO is spending his or her time to do that activity. Huge. Um, I think the, I think that, that, that I would make sure to coach the CFO that yes, they, they have fresh eyes. Um, but to like hold back on uh, uh, making recommendations mm-hmm. versus like getting super curious about different areas. And I think um um, that'd be a super interesting, I like could probably do it an hour just on that of like, how do you make, how do you ensure that that CFO fosters um, curiosity and fosters a um, safe environment? Because you're really trying to, you know, go to people in the Gemba and say, Hey, what are issues you have? And then if, if a person's like, Oh, well, why did you do it that way? Or, you know, that could actually detract mark you're going to say yeah well and some of its tone and a lot some of it is positional power so what might be legitimate curiosity can can come across as threatening because of i've seen a leader senior executive go to gemba hear people very proudly explain what they did to improve the process and that executive asked in a pretty flat tone like well why didn't you do such and such and if it was i think it was from creativity, but the way that landed was like a criticism of you should have done such and such. And I think sometimes leaders um, run the risk of forgetting. They're like, well, I'm, I'm just a person. And like, yeah, they are. But once you get hierarchy and positional um, power, um, that, that can be inadvertently threatening. So I just wanted to call that out. I think that's just mm-hmm. awesome what Jeffrey's doing. And, and um, that's, that's just super cool. And then there was a whole bunch more and I've, going back and forth between not being able to see it, but there's a lot going on with psychological safety in the Oh, and um, I was apparently chatting to the wrong group during <laughs> this and everyone felt like I can felt psychologically t- safe to tell me you're, you need to change your settings. You're not chatting to the right people. Oh, cause there's a setting for chat with everyone versus right. chat with hosts and panelists. And there, there's another comment I'll read, I'll read real quickly. And then we do have two questions from the audience. Um, Heather said our responses may vary based on the emotional state of the person okay. sharing a mistake. If they feel terrible, um, they might just need empathy at the moment. It might not be the time to dig in the problem solving. And I'll tell you, that's something I've learned along the way of, of needing at times to take that pause. As Heather is describing here at times saying, I'm really sorry that happened. And maybe even just leave it at that. You know, of, of, of and, and, and the thing I've, I've, I've seen and talked to people about with mistakes is that people generally feel bad that they they quote unquote made a mistake, even if it was something very systemic in nature. And sometimes you need to give someone a little space to kind of get through that to where now the problem solving part of our brain can be re-engaged. Make not months of space, but it might be an hour or a day, depending on the situation and the person. Respect that. 
While we're hanging out in the comment section, I really liked Paul Vanderclay's question, how do you distinguish safe for mistakes versus accountability? I think that's a good point to call out that safe for mistakes doesn't mean a lack of accountability. Uh, to me, the important thing is how does the person respond to that mistake? Do they hide it? Do they cover it up? Um, do they accept responsibility for it? And can we work together to improve it? Is it a conversation that they're willing to engage in? Are they looking for process improvements? Are they open to process improvements? What can we do together to acknowledge the mistake that happened and move forward from the mistake together? And I think that that's really key. Making mistakes, like, great, make mistakes. Make all the mistakes you need to make in order to keep improving things. But the response to it is also important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And also just getting curious about, well, how did the mistake happen? Like, mm -hmm. was did the person that made the mistake, were they not adequately supported? Is there something that we could do, you know, education-wise? Do they have too much on their plate? It, you know, it that is a big part of it, making sure that employees are adequately supported and, you know, everybody drops the ball now and then, right? It goes back to, you know, what was the intention? Mm -hmm. I think this is a dilemma that a lot of us in the continuous improvement field struggle with, though, is how do we accept that mistakes happen, that problems occur, and also hold people accountable to the standards that we've agreed upon? And I think that you are both hitting the nail on the head when you say that the, the key is that talk we talk about those mistakes, right? And so... Um, when something doesn't go as planned, when we take the time to say this problem happened, um, and then the next step to say, how did this happen, given that we have this standard that we thought was sufficient to make us successful, that's how we manage that accountability, you know, making sure that we're using that opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. Such a nuanced question. I, I love it because when we talk about a principle or a concept, we, we talk about it in almost binary ways, just so we can articulate what we're trying to articulate. And it, it obviously is going to lock a huge amount of nuance, right? I mean, this is a super nuanced question. And um, I think the things that I would be thinking about with regard to this is, is, is this the eighth time this person's made this mistake? And, uh, hundred people do this process and this is the only person that makes this mistake. And then I would get into, well, at that point, it probably is not a process issue, but it may be a process issue for this person because maybe they have a disability. Maybe they lack critical judgment. Maybe they have a different experience level. So like, even though they're the only one out of a hundred people, that could be the only one that made the mistake. There, there could still be reasons mm -hmm. that it's still a process problem, but correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, that the 8515 rule, it does account for that. Some of the time, it is a person that just made a mistake and did a problem, well, and there really wasn't an opportunity. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's this question of, you know, systemic causes of errors and, you know, Dr. Deming, I mean, you throw, on, throw, throw around numbers like 93%. We don't know the exact number, but I think directionally, the point is a vast majority of problems have some sort of systemic cause. But I still think there's this question of, okay, well, what do we mean by accountability? I still think there's great risk in punishing an individual's mistake because then that teaches people to not admit a mistake, right? So like one example, and I shared a little bit about this in the book, I mean, there are certain mistakes you try really hard to prevent, whether that's in the healthcare setting where Linda and Greg have worked a lot. I mean, there are certain mistakes that I think we could say in a non-judgmental way are preventable and we should really prevent them because that mistake could be fatal to a patient. We're not going to view that kind of mistake the same as we would of like, well, we tried a LinkedIn targeted marketing campaign and I think we wasted $500. Like those are not mistakes that are created um, equally, but the question comes back to what do we do in the aftermath of a mistake? And, you know, there, there's just that old um, habit of, you know, punitive responses that I would argue just ends up being counterproductive. If our goal is to reduce mistakes over time, 
I, I don't think punishment helps. It might yeah, no, I think I think you hit yeah. the nail on the head there, Mark. It's completely so. Like after you've let's just say it's ninety three, whatever the number, you you've decided that this was a person issue. What are you going to do about that? And I'm I'm reminded by, and you'll you know names better than I, but there was the nurse that lost her license. We participated in the panel. Um, uh, Redonda Vaught. Yeah, <laughs> the fact that they went through and punished her in the way that they did. Like invariably, like there, there's just it's really hard to make the jump that th- there will not be people hiding mistakes of huge caliber because it was her that came up and said, wait a minute, I made a mistake. This happened. And when you look at the mistakes she made, it was really clear that there were huge process elements with that, like right. not minor ones, but like huge ones. And mm-hmm. then the fact that someone gets punished on that, I understand that the impact of the mistake was huge. Right. But you have to you have to understand what that signals mm-hmm. to the other, you know, I don't know if there's a million nurses and you know millions. how yeah. many millions of nurses and millions of doctors are gonna be like, Oh, so that's what happens if I mm-hmm. talk about this yeah. mistake. But but bring it back to Kinexus. I sidetracked myself. Um, the the one example of you know doing the testing, the penetration testing to make sure that Kinexus does not get hacked, and you know there is a lot of investment in testing of text messages, phone calls, emails, basically trying to trick people into giving up a, a password or access to something. And you know as I shared in the book, the example of telling people. If you think you've clicked on something, you will not be punished for telling us because if it was actually an attack, the impact of that is going to be far worse by not saying anything. You know, it doesn't mean there's no accountability or we don't care, right? I don't, these, these are kind of nuanced situations, but um, we're, running, cool, we're running out of time for nuance, but go, go ahead, Maggie. I clicked the link. It was me. <laughs> Why'd you do that? No, I clicked. I clicked the link. I immediately figured out what I did, and I reported it. And this is like a recurring example we talk about all the time. And I like to think that people knowing that I'm the one that clicked the link, and then that I reported the link, and this is a thing that we all talk about, hopefully contributes to the psychological safety of the next person who gets tricked by emails from their COO linking to Google Documents. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Greg asking you for Apple gift cards. That one's too obvious. <laughs> I never trust emails from Matt Palulis anymore. I never open his emails. The text message that's signed, sincerely, Gregory H. Jacobson. That's not a tiff off. <laughs> um, all right. Well, shoot. We are almost out of time. There, there's a, a question uh, from Emily uh, to summarize it. You know, like, how, how do you, what, what do we do at Kinexus to help create space and time for people to participate in improvement. It's one thing to collect ideas, but are, are there certain practices to help people uh, have time for action? Well, that's tricky because I feel like it's such a core job responsibility. Like it's not something that I set aside separate time for. Mm. It's you're working on a project. Part of working on that project is improving it. So whatever time they're working on the project, the improvement's just baked into it. I think we integrate into the course of our work a lot of opportunities to capture problems, even if you can't do the improvement at that moment. So we, you know, have some shared task lists where we can jot down our ideas or or problems for the time being until we're able to come together as a team and figure out what the next steps for them are. Um, And we make space at our regular company-wide meetings, too. Yeah, I was going to say that I think we have, because we're a startup and because we are constantly solving new problems, we're expanding our product, we're changing internal processes, we have a bigger team. Um, it, it's it's truly just built into everything that we do. I think the challenging thing would be is if you were in an, a different kind of environment where the distinguishing um, act of are you doing value add work or are you doing, or, or are you doing improvement work is going to be further differentiated. And so I, there, it's going to have to be disciplined. I, you know, I don't, I just don't know how else you, you could do it other than literally taking someone out of what they're doing um, or just t- saying, pause, you don't need to make more widgets or do more, whatever you need to do, but like we need to set aside some time to do improvement work. I don't know if there's a, an easy answer to that. Okay. 
Um, and there were a couple other, there was one other question. There was another question from Al in the chat. Um, we're, we're out of time here, but we can commit to following up with some responses to those questions in one format or another. So um, boy, an hour went quickly. I wanna thank um, everyone for attending and for your questions and comments. Wanna thank again, Kim Giuliotti, Greg Jacobson, Maggie Millard, Linda Vaccaro for being here today. When all with a thumbs up or thumbs down, like it, it wasn't a mistake to let Maggie on here. I would say thumbs up. No, thumbs down, yeah. Oh, <laughs> not a mistake. We're happy Maggie's here. I don't know what. You know. <laughs> But, um, th thank you all for sharing your thoughts and, and being part of the conversation here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Mark. Yeah, thanks to you. We'll thanks see everyone. you. Bye next time. Bye next time. It's <laughs> a comment here I'm going to before we end from Michael. This was great. Make no mistake about it. LOL. He typed. And we, are, <laughs> we are literally laughing out loud. So thank you for that, Michael. Thanks again, everyone. <laughs>